You are listening to the Journal of Rheumatology's Editor's Picks with Dr. Earl Silverman, Editor-in-Chief. Hello again from Toronto in the fine month of July, where the flowers have finally come out. I'm Earl Silverman, Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Rheumatology, bringing you five articles from the July edition of the journal. I believe you will find a particular interest. The first article I'd like to review is entitled Repair of Erosions in Patients with Rheumatoid Arthritis and is by Forsland and colleagues. The aim of the study was to examine the frequency of repair of erosions in a cohort of patients with early RA who were followed for an eight-year period. The authors examined 395 out of a total of over 1,200 patients who had been enrolled in a prospectively followed cohort in type called the Barefoot Study. These patients had, had radiographs of the hands and feet at inclusion one year, two years, and eight years following entry. Erosions were scored by the Sharp van der High method. An erosion repair was defined as erosion which had become partially or totally filled with or without sclerosis. Please read the article to find out the percentage of patients with erosions at each time point and the percentage of patients with repair of erosions at each time point. You will find out how the rate of new erosions influenced the percentage of patients with repair and how disease activity altered erosion repair. You will learn if there is any correlation of physical function as measured by the hack and repair of erosions. I believe this article will allow you to better inform your patients of the ability of erosions to repair, but unfortunately will not allow you to comment on the effect of early biologic therapy on erosion repair, as the majority of patients in this particular cohort did not receive early biologic Therapy as the cohort examined was between the years 1993 and 2005. The next article to highlight is entitled Very Low Disease Activity, DAPSA Remission and Impact of Disease in a Spanish Population with Psoriatic Arthritis and is by Cario and colleagues from the MOPS study group. The aim of this article is to examine if the two commonly used outcome measures in PSA, specifically the low disease activity measure or the VLDA measure, and the disease activity index for psoriatic arthritis or DAPSA remission had a good correlation. A secondary aim was to examine the association of these disease measures with the patient reported PSA impact scale specifically the psoriatic arthritis impact of disease questionnaire. This study was a postdoc analysis of data from an observational multi-centered cross-sectional retrospective study from 25 rheumatology outpatient centers throughout Spain. All 227 patients in this study met the CASPAR criteria for psoriatic arthritis and had disease duration of at least one year and were treated with either biologic and or conventional synthetic DMARDs. Please read the article to see how the percentage of patients with the VLDA correlated with the DAPSA or the C-DAPSA, which was the DAPSA without the CRP, and the association of the use of anti-TNF 
therapy with the achievement of these goals. You will find out how the disease measures correlate with low disease impact from the patient's perspective. The authors review the advantages and disadvantages of these disease measures and which they recommend to be used in routine clinical practice. The article is accompanied by an editorial, which I encourage you to read, entitled The Assessment of Disease Activity in Psoriatic Arthritis, MDA, VLDA, DAPSA, or something else, by Ennio Lubrano. In this editorial, Dr. Lubrano gives his view on whether, if any of the measures outlined in the article, are optimal from both the physician's and patient's perspective. After reading this article and the accompanying editorial, you can decide for yourself which, if any, of the methods to monitor PSA you might want to use in your practice. Now I'd like to switch to SLE and give an overview of an important article entitled Use of Consensus Methodology to Determine Candidate Items for Systemic Lupus Erythematosus Classification Category by Johnson et al. This article is the first of a series of articles to appear in the future which examine which articles should be used to classify SLE. This is a collaborative project of ULAR and ACL. Before going into the article itself, I want to point out that all criteria to date for SLE, and the new criteria is no exception, are for the classification but not the diagnosis of SLE. Classification criteria are used to identify a homogeneous group of patients for inclusion in clinical trials and observational studies, but are not to be directly used to diagnose or treat an individual patient. Of course, most, if not all, patients who meet classification criteria can be assumed for clinical reasons to have SLE, but the reverse is not always true. Now some background to this article. The process of criteria generation was divided into two phases. The initial phase examined the sensitivity and specificity of an ANA titer of 1 to 80 or greater. They found that the sensitivity, not unexpectedly, was excellent at 97.8, but of course had limited specificity. Then phase three included three other independent phases. There was first a Delphi exercise in which SLE experts identified 140 candidate criteria and 40 of them were retained following this exercise. They then used a data-driven exercise and three additional criteria were added and then a patient perspective study was carried out and this led to 43 candidate items proposed for phase two of the study. This is the topic of this article. The objective of this phase was to further reduce the number of candidate criteria and retain the items that would increase the likelihood of a correct classification of SLA and particularly in early disease course. To this end, the nominal group technique was used and an expert panel consisting of 19 adult rheumatologists from Canada, Mexico, the USA, Austria, Germany, France, Italy, and Spain met. 43% were European and 57 were North American. As you will notice, the continents of Asia, 
South America, Australia, and Africa were not represented, nor were experts in childhood onset SLE, nor nephrologists. The panel reduced the potential items from 43 to 21. Please read this article to better understand the pros and cons of the use of a nominal group technique and whether you believe the expert panel represents SLE expertise around the world and if weighting of criteria are needed. And finally, what work is still needed before we can use these 21 criteria rather than the current ACR or SLEC classification systems. The fourth article also looks at classification of patients with SLE, but this time with childhood onset cohort. Paper is entitled Comparison of Sensitivity of the American College of Rheumatology and Systemic Lupus International Collaborating Clinics Classification Criteria in Childhood Onset Systemic Lupus Erythematosus, and it is by Tao and colleagues, of which I am the senior author. I want to point out that all classification criteria for SLE were developed in adult cohorts and then used in childhood onset patients. And the two currently used criteria are no exception. The aim of this study was to compare the sensitivities of the ACR and SLIC criteria in CSLE using a large multi-ethnic cohort. Specificity, however, was not addressed. Study was a retrospective examination of a prospectively collected cohort of 722 patients diagnosed with childhood onset SLE at a single center, the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto. The diagnosis was by expert opinion and consensus of the authors. The study found that the SLIC criteria had an increased sensitivity as compared to the ACR criteria to classify a patient as having SLA. Specifically, 87% or 48 of 55 patients who were deemed to SLE but did not have the ACR criteria met the SLIC criteria. But conversely, 20 out of 27 patients or 74% who did not meet the SLIC criteria met the ACR criteria. Please read the article to find out which criteria resulted in the differences in the sensitivities of the two classification criteria and what the recommendations of the authors are to increase the sensitivity to classify a patient as having childhood onset SLE. Final article I wish to highlight is entitled Vaccination Guidelines for Patients with Immune-Mediated Disorders Taking immunosuppressive therapies and executive summary and is by Pop and colleagues. This is a summary of a Canadian multidisciplinary committee consisting of Canadian rheumatologists, gastroenterologists, dermatologists, and infectious disease physicians who developed guidelines for vaccination in adult patients receiving immunosuppressive medication. A literature search was performed examining clinical trials, meta-analyses, systematic reviews, observational studies, case reports, and currently existing guidelines. Studies reviewed by the committee and assessed using the grade system of evidence levels. Please read this important article, which consists of 13 statements addressing general immunization strategies for patients exposed to immunomodulatory agents, whether they be biologic or non-biologic. 
10 of the statements focus on the management of patients with immune-mediated disease, and three are for vaccination of infants with early exposure to immunosuppressive agents. Each of the recommendations has the recommendation's strength and level of evidence assigned to it. Two of the recommendations examine the use of the live attenuated herpes zoster vaccination, but there are none about the recombinant herpes zoster vaccination as it was not available at the time the panel was assembled. I strongly advise that rheumatologists treating adults with rheumatic diseases on immunosuppressive therapy read this article and keep their recommendations handy. I want to thank you all for listening to my summary of what I felt were interesting articles appearing in the July 2019 issue of the Journal of Rheumatology. I hope my summaries will lead you to reading not only these articles, but in fact all of the articles appearing in the July 2019 edition of the journal. Please read either the print edition or the online edition, which can be found at www.jroom.org. If you have any comments on the summary or any articles appearing in the journal, please send them to manuscripts at jroom.com. I hope you will listen next month when I give you my August picks. Thank you. Thank you.